Dingleberry, Adam Stratton Hart, Maxwell Willis Corwin, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> we got married a lot in my generation. We really did think that motels were for traveling. We just got married. <laughs> now, I want to tell you that now I talk for 15 or 20 minutes, almost until the dance starts. And he told you the truth. I think he is handsome. I mean, really, until he is. And I, I met it. I met it. Now, I also want to thank Don and any others that may have been responsible for bringing me here. I'm not putting you on to what I consider to be the finest AA roundup or convention the most knowledgeable, right? I mean, you know all about the steps, all about the traditions, anonymity and sponsorship. I was at those workshops, and I heard the 12 concepts. I had to stand up in the back. And I mean, you know so much. Don told me over the phone, he said, we have a great number of women, and a great number of women, sober women, and, and about 40% of our outfit is, they're about under 30. And I love that. To think of all, all the youngsters coming into Alcoholics Anonymous, so young. My first experience with a very young lady, I was talking at a young people's group in Westwood a good number of years ago, and it was the first time I'd done it. And I was scared, because they were just kids. And I thought, they've got the wrong woman. They don't, just, they don't want to hear an old bag like me talking to them. I mean, they were chewing gum and snapping their fingers and saying, out, out of the yard because it was hot, you know. And, and I said, uh, where's the restroom? And the little girl said, that away, that away, you know. And I thought, Jesus. So before they called on me, I thought, they may heckle me. They may go boo or something. And I got terribly scared of them because I had never seen that many young people in my life. So I went through my litany about the old covered day, old covered wagon days of Alcoholics Anonymous, and and they were listening, and I got more confidence, and I finished, and, and they started shaking hands with me, and a gal came up to me, it looked like she was nine feet tall, and I, I looked way up at her, and I said, what's your name, honey? And she said, June, will you be my sponsor? And and I said, how old are you? She said, 13. <laughs> that young lady hung out her shingle last June. She's an attorney now. And I think, it's, I think that's terrific. And I'll tell you something to match it in the other direction. I was at a meeting in Inglewood, California, which uh, I helped start way back in those covered wagon days, old group, and I talked there at every anniversary. And... A lady walked up to me and said, I'm sponsoring this new, new lady and I want you to meet her. She's been sober 30 days. And I looked at this sweet lady and she was 83. <laughs> how, how about that? I mean, 30 days sober, what a wonderful way to live at 83 years old. She'll probably live to be older than I expect to live. Although one day I'm going to come back here because I think this is the brightest spot in AA that I've seen in ever so long. And I hope to come back here 24 years from now and say, my name is Sybil and I'm 99 years old. <laughs> 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 
Now, you young people take good care of me. I'm standing on a cracker box that's a 12 inches. Remind me, box, box, box. When you think I'm about ready to sit down and say, watch the box, watch the box. Because I may get carried away. I do a lot of times. Uh, I started drinking when I was 15 or 16. I don't remember when because it has been a long, a long time ago because I will be uh, 75 years old in May. And... <laughs> And that's really old when I say it. <laughs> but that's not me. It's, I, I just like I'm looking at an old rerun movie of Mary Pickford or something like that because um, I tell you, AA is good medicine and it keeps me going and it keeps me young and I want to live and I love it and it gets better all the time. If there are new people here tonight, please take my word for it because I could not believe that it would get better all the time. I thought I'd be bored. I always had been with everything I ever started. I never finished anything. And, and I thought, it can't last. It can't last. It just, you know, I'll, I'll be a failure again. I failed at everything after 17 years of blackouts and black eyes and broken teeth and fights and dented finger, uh, fenders and broken glasses. Put my glass, the bartenders that like me had put them on the bar, on the cash register so that I wouldn't bust them or stomp on them or sit on them or something like that. And uh, that was about my only, only expense because when I went into a bar, um, I didn't expect to buy more than a couple of drinks because if I had to buy, buy more than two, um, then there wasn't a live one there to buy the third round. I got in my car and went somewhere else. <laughs> story of my life is, uh, now one time I was married to a sailor, one of those, uh, there's five, don't make any bets on how many times I've been married, there's got some guys out in the lobby once where I talked, uh, uh, they made bets, one of them said, she, she named eight names, she's been married eight times, another one said, no, she's been married six times, and I said, you're both wrong, I had to be born and be named, it's Sybil Doris Adams, that's my maiden name, and I've been married five times, so they both lost me, but then that's the way it was. I just got married a lot. I was immature, and I was always going on to something that was going to help me, help me, help me to be like other people. And I was scared and nervous and shy, and um, I, I, I just couldn't cope with life. And although I made good beginnings, I worked at everything, just name anything, and I have done it. I was a Jill of all trades. I left school when I was quite young. Uh, my family was poor, and I finished a, a short-term course uh, business course and got a typewriter and shorthand and all that I did at home. I uh, got my first divorce and the attorney uh, that got it for me let me work for him free and he taught me to be a legal secretary and that's a good job. And I was good at that. But drinking, you know, I couldn't do that very long. And so it went. And I married this sailor boy. We had a little baby and I was too drunk to take care of her. And so mama had her. And that just killed my soul because I adored that baby. And when she was born, I said, you precious little innocent thing, I'm going to be a good wife and mother and I'll never take another drink, so help me God. And I dropped her one night. Not too far, didn't damage her. But it, it, that, that was terrible, the guilt I felt. Mama came and picked her up. I just dropped her too hard down into the bassinet or whatever, and then I passed out on the floor. And I didn't want Mama to, to see me like that. My, my folks were very stern, strict, religious people. And I did my very, I was doing my very best. And I couldn't, couldn't do any better. 
And so Bill, the baby's father, paid off uh, out of the Navy, couldn't get a job, the depression and everything. We hitchhiked out of town over the ridge route from Los Angeles to Bakersfield because in that era, young people from colleges and people would go pick the fruit during the summer. And we knew that it was that season. And so we hitchhiked up there to get a job picking grapes and to sober up because there, there, there was no way to go. There was no way to find sobriety at all, except maybe the Keeley cure or something like that, the aversion treatment. And I prayed a lot, drunk or sober. I had a, an asset when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I had a faith when I came in, not the higher power that we talk about today, but I did believe in prayer and I had been baptized and I went to Sunday school as a little kid in Texas, moved away from there when I was 13, started drinking a couple of years later, would never go back to church because I didn't want to be a hypocrite. I wouldn't drink all week and go to church on Sunday. So this young fellow who was only about 21 or 22, we hitchhiked out of town. We got up to a place called Arvin, and it, it was off the main highway, about 18 miles, and we both got a job picking grapes out, 120 in August, and hot. But I was hungover, and I gritted my teeth, and I did pick those grapes, five cents a box. And so did he. And uh, I picked 120 boxes, which was great, you know, and uh, that was money. And then the young people who had been in the field with us, 15 or 20 of them, and they all were incredibly young. Uh, at sundown, they built a bonfire, and they all sat around it. And I had been sweating all day, and I felt good inside. Now it's going to be different. We're going to go home and get an apartment. I can get the baby away from Mama, and I won't need to drink because we'll be away from those people in Los Angeles that I drank with. And so they built this bonfire, and they began to roast weenies and marshmallows and everything and have a good time. And Bill and I joined them around the circle, you know, and they were singing and so forth. And then I looked, and they were passing a jug around, two jugs, headed my way. And I want you to know that my heart sank, and I was full of despair because you know what? I knew I was going to get drunk. What was I there for? So when the bottle reached me, I drank against my better judgment, and I drank out of the other bottle, and pretty soon I am roaring drunk, and I'm crying, and a crying jag, and again, full of despair. I leave that crowd, and I walk down the rows of grapes, and I hear this heavenly music, which turned out to be... Uh, a revival meeting at the end of the Great Road, big tacky tent, and I'm really emotional about him. I always cry. I did tonight. I always will. And I was already crying. And when I heard that music, I thought I had DTs. And I began to try to run, and I lurched, and I ran, and it was a big khaki tent, and it was a revival meeting, and I parted the flap of the tent, and I went in, just swaying from side to side, dirty face. The music stopped, and they all turned around and looked at me. The preacher said, And now turn to page 138, and while we sing this next hymn, if there's anyone here who wants to be saved, please come forward at this time. That was me. <laughs> And they watched my progress. It took a long time for me to get down there to that altar. And that man reached out while they were singing this emotional song. And he put his hand on my head to pray for me. And I threw up all over him. <laughs> I did, I did. 
And they carried me outside the tent, put me on the ground. When I came to, I sneaked over to the highway and I got on a truck and I was back at my mother's house by daylight. Did you know that I groaned into my pillow when I remembered that horrible scene? It was 11 years after that that I found alcoholic. And I won't go into all that except the sailor boy abandoned me with a baby and I had no money. I went to work in a taxi dance hall on the first night. This sounds like a story, but it's true. A rich, handsome fellow walked in and bought all the tickets and danced with me all night. And I gave him this same sad story with all the sobbing that I didn't want to behave like that. I want to be a good wife and mother. And during the intermission, he bought me pitchers of beer, and I told him the story. And he said, you don't belong in a place like this. I'll adopt your baby and be a good father to her. He said, let's get married. I said, let's do. <laughs> he said, providing you don't drink anymore. And I said, oh, sure, sure, sure. So I had the big black gleaming automobile. He adopted the baby and uh, had the housekeeper and uh, the, the rugs and the damask furniture and drapes and so forth. And I was drunk in a week. And I didn't know why. And that hit me hard. Now it was, I was no longer insecure financially. I had a good husband. The man was a saint and there's no doubt of it. I'm going to cut ahead here a minute, and I've got to come back to this, but after I had been sober eight years, he got so fed up with me going to AA that he began to hate AA with a bitter passion because he kept his wife away from him. Now, I want you to understand there was no Al-Anon, no way for him to go, and he had no, uh, uh, no idea of what this was about. He wouldn't go to meetings with me. And it got to where when I come back from a meeting, he'd say, again? I'd say, oh, honey, I'm sorry. I won't go. I, I'll cut down. I'll only go twice a week. And then I'd go the next night because a new baby called up or something or other, and he'd be at the door, and he'd say, again, you promised. And I said, I'm sorry. I can't help it, but I, 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 I really will try to keep my promise. Let's go back to the Lutheran church. You, you sing in the choir, and the little girl will come along, and it'll be a family, and then I'll go to AA, and we'll go to church. We did that. That didn't work because he kept after me and after me, and, and I was just a nervous wreck, and, but I had to go. And one night I came home, and he was all smiles, and he said, Honey, I've got the solution to our marriage. Understand, there was no program for him. It wasn't even in existence then. And he sa I said, The solution to our marriage, okay, let's talk about it. And I was grinning from ear to ear, and he said, Well, I'll tell you what I've been thinking about. He said, Why don't you go back to drinking? like in the good old days, and I'll take care of you again. And I looked at him, and I didn't pop off. I didn't have a temper tantrum, as I was wont to do, and there was anything that hurt me that dreadfully. And I went upstairs, and I packed my suitcase, and I never looked back. And I, had to, I could not sacrifice my sobriety. And that was a long time after I was sober. But now, I want to take you back to my last drunk, I'd been up to San Francisco in a blackout, didn't know how I got there, I got back to town, and I was afraid this dear man that I told you about uh, was going to leave me and take the baby. And I saw a Turkish bath, and I went in it to get sober so I could go home and tell another lie. And I picked up a magazine so I wouldn't have to think. And I picked it up, and it was a Saturday Evening Post article dated March 1st, 1941. Alcoholics Anonymous by Jack Alexander. You've got that pamphlet, the reprint. And it just stunned me. 
But it was too rum dumb to read the article, but I'd heard of AA in 1939 when I was down at my mother-in-law's in San Diego, this little article that we had by Fulton Osler about a paragraph long, I think it was Fulton Osler, it was called Alcoholics and God. It talked about a bunch of people in the East who were, a few men in the East were meeting for the mutual purpose of gaining their sobriety, and they called themselves Alcoholics Anonymous and in 1939. But I didn't want to take the magazine. I was afraid my mother-in-law would find out that I'd stolen it and that she'd catch on or something. I don't know. But now in 41, boy, that just hit me between the eyes, and I wrote a letter then for help. I said, I'm a desperate woman alcoholic. Please tell me how to get to your AA hospital in New York. You see, the pictures in the Saturday Evening Post showed a full-page spread of a man on a stretcher being put in an ambulance. And I thought, ooh, they're going to take him to the AA hospital and cure him. See how much I knew? I turned the page, and the man's in the bed, and there are uh, two people sitting there talking to him. Might have been uh, Bill and Dr. Bob. Probably was. I don't know. And um, I thought, oh, he's going to get well, and I've got to get to the AA hospital and get cured. So my pitiful little letter said, I'll take the next plane back to New York and go to your AA hospital. And I meant it. And a few days later, I got my reply from Ruth Hawk, Bill Wilson's secretary. Ah, oh, that lady, that lady, I love her more than anything on earth. She saved my life. She wrote this letter quickly. I guess my letter got there ahead of the huge number of letters that followed. And she said, don't go to New York. You have a little group in California, only one. And there's a few men who are meeting. Uh, they started in 39 with four, and they got to six, and back to five, and up to eight, and so forth. They may have as many as a dozen, but I must tell you, my dear, they've never had a lady lush. <laughs> and she said, we've had very poor luck in the beginning with the lady lushes here in New York, but we have one now, and her name is Marty, Marty Mann. She, and she said something, something to that order. She's been sober nine months. Now, I didn't save that letter because I didn't know it would make history. So anything I say will be uh, just the way I remember it. And it was on that order that we have a gal sober about nine months and her name is Marty. And that gave me hope. And so she added, P.S., if you want help, call Cliff Walker. Cliff Walker is written up in AA Comes of Age. They had no facilities in California for 12-step calls, and Cliff and his wife Dorothy took care of the 12-step calls until... Uh, 1944, when I central office opened. Well, I went down there. I went down there to that meeting. She told, directed me to it at the Elks Temple on a Friday night at 8.30, and she said, they'd be so happy to see you. We've never had, they've never had a woman alcoholic, and if you've only got one back here, please go down. So I didn't need any urging. And my non-alcoholic husband went with me down there, and um, uh, they were seated around a table in a little dining room, and I couldn't bear to look at them. I didn't know who they were, whether they were doctors or interns or what they were going to do to me or what. I had my letter with me, though, from New York, and I was going to show it if I got any static. <laughs> and I had on my red turban with my hair pushed up under it, and my face was bloated, and I went in there with eyes downcast and shaking, and I had a nervous tick. My lip would go. <laughs> and it did until I was sober 90 days, and I couldn't control it, and it would make tears come to my eyes. I was a mess. And this man got up at the head of that table and he said, this is the regular meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in California. We're a band of ex-drunks who gathered together to obtain and maintain our sobriety on an all-time basis 
with no mental reservation whatsoever. And I said to myself, what an order. I can't go through with it. <laughs> and I meant it. Nine days had been the longest I'd been sober since I was a teenager. And that scared me to death. And then he went on to say, and the women will have to leave. You can come back and share the coffee and donuts after the meeting. And I knew that meant me because I hadn't seen any women. And I got up hysterically and put my hands over my face and I went out the side door into that big lobby and I went in the powder room and I cried and I did, oh, it was bad. And my sainted husband sat in there and they thought he was a new baby and they just gave every good shot they could to him. Easy does it, first things first and everything else. And they, they thought he was a new baby and, the, and they hadn't had any response from uh, the Saturday Evening Post article yet and babies were scarce. And that meeting went on for hours because wherever they lived in California, if they wanted to get sober, they had to come to that meeting. That was it. They had a little group just starting in Houston, small one in Cleveland and Akron, one woman sober in New York. And I mean, these guys were thirsty, hungry for AA and they talked forever. And I'm dying, and the doors finally opened, and I rushed over to Dick, and I said, give me my pills, give me my prescription, my cure. For God's sake, I'm dying. He said, oh, Sib, you don't know what I've been through. <laughs> when we drove home, I was still sobbing. When he got out of the car, I went to a bar, and I got drunk, obnoxious, and mean. I had my letter in my, oh, my letter from New York. And I had had such great faith in it. And finally, the bartender made me leave. And then I thought, well, it does say, P.S., call Cliff Walker if you want help. So I put a nickel in the telephone, and I called Cliff. And I said, send your AA ambulance and pick me up. <laughs> I had a vision of that ambulance, you see, uh, in the Saturday Evening Post. And I thought it would be a gleaming white ambulance with two big red A's on the side. I mean it, I, I mean it. And I thought it would pull up in front of all the bars after two o'clock and rescue the falling down drunks like me, because I did fall down. I'd run a little and get up and run a little and get holes in my nylons, and, and that was it. And he said, you're drunk. I said, of course I am. <laughs> and he said, we don't go to bars and rescue drunks. I said, young man, I want you to know that I have a letter of authorization from New York which should entitle me to every privilege. And so far, I went down to your exclusive club tonight, and they threw me out, and now you're not going to come and get me. And he says, well, go home. Go back to the meeting Friday. Did you tell them that you were alcoholic? I said, certainly not. And he said, well, you should have, because they need you. We've never had a woman. And I thought about that for a minute, and I got madder and madder. And I finally said, well, I'll go home for one reason only, and that is so that I can call New York in the morning and have you fired. <laughs> so he was my sponsor, and God love him. He died on my 39th uh, AA birthday, which is March 23rd um, of 1941, of course. And I, I miss him to this very hour. But you know what? I went back to that next meeting, and my big but fat brother Tex went along, man of great talent who was either rich or terribly poor. He was either in the Heights or he was down on Skid Row, and at that point he'd lost all his money once again. 
and he and I had drank together for years and finally drank separately because he thought I was an abnormal drinker and he could handle his. And I often wondered why, because I'd bailed him out of jail 89 times. But anyway, we didn't drink together anymore at that time. And um, so my brother Tex comes over the next morning after that uh, meeting, when the ill-fated meeting, and he... He picks up that pamphlet that Ruth had sent me, and I wish I'd saved it again. I didn't know it would be noteworthy today. I didn't have even read it. A little skinny pamphlet, about uh, six by seven or something like that. Just gave the steps. And he read it, and he was quiet for a change. And he was a big mouth Texan, and uh, about nearly 300 pounds. And I told him about it, and he said, uh, it's a moneymaker, it's a gimmick. But if it can help you, it can help anybody. And I can't get a crew together down in Produce Row to peddle the vegetables for me. He had a vegetable truck at that time. And he had owned a dairy prior, uh, prior to that. And he said, they're all in jail. And I can uh, I'll go down there and I can find out what's going on because I know there's money connected with this thing some way. But if they can help you, sis, they can help anybody. So I'm going to take all those winos down there. I said, for God's sake, Tex, don't go. You tell a drunk to go north, he'll go south. He says, I'm going, but I'll be sober, and they won't even know I'm not an alcoholic because they can't smell my breath. And I couldn't talk him out of it. I says, but I want my chance. He says, you'll get your chance. So he says, I'll be over next Friday night, because that's all there was, just once a week. Imagine that, once a week, an AA meeting. And he came over in his vegetable truck that following Friday night, and standing up in the back were 11 winos. <laughs> and we go down to the mother group, and there were more of us than there were of them, really. The group hadn't grown that much, and the Saturday Evening Post uh, thing, you know, just hadn't hit that heavily. And I didn't hear a word. I was afraid he'd talk out of line, get us both evicted again. And uh, I just stayed quiet. And pretty soon, Frank Randall went out and he got a big carton box with five or six hundred twelve-step calls in it. See, that's the week following when I went down the first time. And he had them all wrapped up in big bundles according to the area. Riverside County, the beaches, you know, San Diego, Fresno, San Joaquin Valley, Los Angeles, Glendale, Pasadena, you name it. And he'd say, any of you jokers been sober 15 minutes, come up here and get these 12-step calls and see these drunks by next Friday or one of them might die. And that was scary. And I was fascinated by that. And pretty soon he'd, and I was watching them, you know, they'd raise their hand. Anybody, uh, anybody in Riverside? Here, said Kent Hayden. Anybody in Long Beach? Here, said Curly O'Neill. He went up and got his, and so it went. Now there's only one big stack left. And he said, I've saved these for the last, because they're all from women alcoholics. And uh, Cliff Walker said a drunk woman called him the other night, and he gave me her name. And aren't you Sybil Maxwell? And I said, <laughs> and he said, come on up here, Sybil. Come on up. All these calls are from women, and I'm putting you in charge of all the women. And I tottered up there, and a great, big, tall man dressed like the President of the United States, my nervous tick ticking and everything. <laughs> and I, I tottered up there, you know, and I looked up at him, and I said, Sir, sir, I can't. He says, Why not? I said, Because I'll be drunk next Friday. <laughs> I said, I always have been. I said, Nobody's told me what to do or how you're doing this. I haven't heard anything about, about how, how not to drink because I hadn't. I said, is it, is it a miracle or magic or something that, that you can, is there something that you can do that will guarantee that I'm going to, that I can, uh, what's going to happen? 
that fast to where I could leave here and come back a week later and tell you I'm sober, or words to that effect, because I was honestly sincere. I was trying to save my life, and I stuttered. I forgot to tell you that. <laughs> well, he said, you may not call it a miracle, but I'll tell you. I'll tell you. And to us, it could be a miracle. Here in California, we always have put great store in the big red book. Then right here on page so-and-so, it says, and we go by that, when all other measures fail, working with another alcoholic will save the day. He says, that's what you'll be doing. You ring that doorbell, and when that little girl comes to the door, you say to her, do you have a drinking problem? Here's the letter I have that you wrote for help. And she'll look at it, recognize your handwriting, say, yes, yes, I wrote that letter. Say, well, I wrote a letter, too, and they answered mine, and I was down there last week. Now, if you want to get sober as badly as I want, want to get sober, you come with me, and we'll find out together. And he says, don't add anything to that, because you don't know anything. <laughs> I said, I can do that. <laughs> and I did. And I bundled them all up with rubber bands according to town and area. Santa Barbara went down to the Miramar Hotel in Santa Barbara and got a little psycho gal that came out and, and uh, she stopped at the cigarette machine out in the lobby and said, wait till I put in a quarter. I heard the most beautiful tune on this machine this morning. <laughs> and uh, so that was that. I mean, some of them are not that well. <laughs> but I didn't drink. Now, if it held true then, it holds true today. Because recently, I read the big book again, and I think it's in chapters 6 and 7 in particular. Now, if it isn't, write me a letter and tell me exactly where it is, because there's a statement there, and I want to pin it down to the page. It says, stay on the firing line of life, and God will protect you from all harm. And I think it's either in chapter 6 or chapter 7. And I believe that. And in that book, in chapter 6 and 7, it was stressed by Bill that when all of the measures fail, working with another alcoholic will save the day or in words to that effect. And he stressed that and mentioned over and over and over again through the book and in the other official writings of AA that work with other alcoholics, work with other alcoholics. And he didn't say after you've been sober a year or after you've been sober six months because Bill started with nobody, just Bill. He worked with a bunch of drunks, and they got drunk for a long time, six months. And he's going to quit. Lois said, don't do it, Bill. Bill said, but I'm a failure. And Lois said, no, you're not. You've been sober six months. And he says, my golly, Lois, you're right. It has been six months. I guess I'll just keep on doing it. And shortly after that, he went to Akron. You know what happened? He met Dr. Bob. There were two of them. They had no name. He went to see Bill Dotson in the hospital there in Akron. There were three of them. They had no name. Didn't even have a book. And they stayed sober by working with other alcoholics. And I've been sober long enough that I'm going to register a gripe and it won't do a bit of good. And I don't expect it to. <clears throat> But many of the area offices and the central office in which I worked for 12 years in Los Angeles as executive secretary and many other places have written it down and carved it in stone and on their foreheads, I guess, 
and at the committee meetings that nobody can have a 12-step call out of the central office until they've been sober a year. And we squawked so loud in Los Angeles, they reduced it to six months. But I bumped into a man at a meeting not long ago, and he'd been sober nine years, and he got drunk again, and came back, and he was edgy. And he was sober five and a half months, and he called up, as he used to do when he was staying sober all those nine years, and he dropped away from AAC, and he got drunk. And he said, I'm, I'm edgy, I need a 12-step call. And they said, how long have you been sober? And they said, five and a half months. And they said, call us in two weeks. That's what he told me. I think it stinks. I, I do. So I checked around, and they've reduced it in most area offices, central office, services offices, or whatever. You call them in the various areas. And there are many of them that the minimum is six months of sobriety. Well, what a terrible thing that it would have been if Bill had sat right there in New York and somebody had told him about Dr. Bob and he had said, well, I tell you, I hear that doctor is in terrible shape over there. He might die, but I'll go over and see him when I've been sober, oh, six months or a year. I'll take a look at him over there in Akron, you know. What if he'd waited? I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here at all. And Bill wrote in many places. I read recently little statements like, Dr. Bob was edgy, and I knew he had to work with another drunk. And, and there's another statement that I won't quote exactly because I don't know how to do that. I never do. Um, Nothing so much ensures immunity from drink as intensive work with other alcoholics. I hope I'm not beating this to death, but I, I think it is vital. I really think it is vital. And it's no big deal. Don't be afraid to do it. Uh, you can find some scared, lonesome person in the back of the room, you know, and um, talk to them. And, and if they're like me, and if nobody had come up to talk to them, I would never have gone back, you know. Because when I went back, they used to pat me on, pat me on the head and say, how long you been sober, Sybil? And I'd say, nine days. <gasps> You're doing a good job, Sybil. And they petted me and they pampered me and I was in charge of the women and I had my little system there, you know, because they gave me a book to put down the names of, of all of the women. And I was in charge of them and I tell you, you, nobody else could make those calls. And if you got a call on a woman, you turn it over to Sybil. And I, our third tradition says we're, we're tr trusted servants, we do not govern, but I did. <laughs> because I wanted to do what Frank and Mort told me to do, the leaders. And I'd go down to that mother group, which grew rapidly, and we finally had to move to a bigger and bigger auditorium. And uh, I'd get up there, and there would be the sponsor and the sponsee sitting, yeah, there's Susie, she brought Mary, and I'd cross them off, you know, and I'd look, and I'd count them up, and my books balanced, and everybody was there. <laughs> no matter where you lived, if you heard of a woman that was sick, you had to relay it through Sybil, and she'd give it to a woman, and it was a big deal, and it kept me hopping. And I was in my car, and my daughter tells me now uh, that she used to ride in the back of the car with her Crayola book. I didn't remember that. Incidentally, don't, and it's not incidentally, that's, I don't mean that word. Uh, I got good news. My daughter is 15, raised five kids. I have a great grandson, 10 years old, and she lives up in Hollister, and I see her a couple times a year. Beautiful 50 years old, looks young. She and her husband, Gary, are just precious. And when I was in Grant's past talking about uh, old 1st of May or something like that, 
Bob called me at my motel and said, I've got great news. And I said, what? And he said, I had a, your daughter called me up and said she'd been sober 30 days. She got her 30-day tip. And I felt like I'd been hit in the gut. I didn't even know she was a social drinker or drink. I didn't know how to take it hardly. So I talked to an Al-Anon and said, how will I handle this? And she said, be grateful, be happy. She said, I got two kids in AA and uh, another one coming along. And so immediately, I was happy and grateful. Now, from that little cuddly baby that I wanted to get sober for, I thought, not for me, but for her, but you know that isn't the truth. Now she's in this fellowship with her husband, and they're over in Nevada this weekend with my husband, who is one of the speakers there. And I, I, I tell you, it's just too much. I am so privileged. It is such a tremendous honor to be a part of this thing that I can't begin to tell you what it means to me. There's so much that I want to say. I could talk until Monday at noon, and then Don would never have me back again. I think old Fred is there. He, he, he really did a great job the other night. No one can get My husband Bob has been sober 19 years. He was a hardcore atheist, and I've known him for 30 years, and he's been, uh, we've been married 17. He finally got sweetly reasonable after uh, all those years of coming in and out of AA at the Hole in the Ground, which is the group that my brother Tex started. See, I jumped ahead. Brother Tex stayed sober, started a group, the Hole in the Ground in Huntington Park, after he'd been sober six weeks, and he got excommunicated by my mother group where I was in charge. And I was on touchy ground. They said, well, blood's thicker than water. Maybe we better kick her out, too. And Cliff Walker says, no, you're not going to do it. He started the group. When he went back down there again, they said, get lost. We don't need you. We've incorporated Alcoholics Anonymous in California. And he said, yes, you're trying to incorporate a sunset. This thing is going to grow and grow and grow. All I've done is I get tired of going that long distance down here every Friday, and I've got babies from all the beaches, Inglewood, Southgate, Linwood, and everything like that. And I've started a group that is... Uh, well, participation meeting, all the drunks talk three to five minutes, and it's on a different night, and it can't hurt. And they said, the hell it can't, we don't want you, and just don't come back. And he said, I'll be pretty busy with a new group, but I'll come back when I want to. Nobody can throw me out. And he was right. See, we had no traditions to guide us, and so we did everything wrong, terrible things. Some fat cat in the group would want to pay all the bills, and we'd let them, you know. <laughs> And 30 years ago, my Bob, that would have been 1949, he just couldn't make it. He was in and out, in and out, in and out, because he had no faith in anything. And everybody loved Bob. Oh, there's dear Bob. Oh, 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 Bob's back again. And I was married to the founder of Gamblers Anonymous, Jim Willis. And uh, he was a drunk, and he got drunk, but he did start GA, and it's a going concern, let me tell you. And... Jim and Bob were buddies, and the, his, Jim, Bob's wife and Jim and I, we'd go to the conventions together, and one would get drunk, and the other one would get drunk, and I was, loved them both, and uh, Bob and I were buddies and uh, everything. But he couldn't stay sober, neither could Jim. And Bob really loved the people, but he had no faith because his father had raised him to be an atheist. And I had a hard time, and my heart always did go out to the people who loves the program but can't make it. And thank God he heard something in 1963 
And that's his story, but he heard just one sentence that changed his life when he went back that last time. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. And his back was wet with sweat, and I was there when it happened, and he'll be sober 19 years in October, I tell you. Uh, it just gets me. really does. But when Bob first went to AA in 1949, he asked his sponsor, how long do I have to go to AA? And his sponsor said, you have to go to AA until you want to go to AA, and then you'll never have to go to AA again. <laughs> That's about right. Nobody, well, listen, I could get drunk tonight, you know. I really could. If I didn't want to be here, I could be somewhere else. I could be drunk. I don't want to. I really don't want to. I didn't hear the steps too much in the early days. I was so wrapped up in my big brother and the impetus of the new fellowship and all of those women and going to meetings, and I was running around like a chicken with his head off. And uh, at the hole in the ground, they talked about the steps. And Tex would uh, say, Everybody raised their hands just taking their inventory, and everybody had raised their hands but me. And I thought, he can't make me do that. I went to AA ahead of him a little bit, and I'm his sponsor. <laughs> and, it's, and you know, I was going to, and, and I'd just sit there and fold my arms. I was madder than a hatter, really, because I didn't want anybody to tell me I had to take an inventory and then make me raise my hand, so I wouldn't do it. And even after I did, I wouldn't do it. And <laughs> And I, I, I just think that's my business, you know. <laughs> and so I just wouldn't, wouldn't do what my brother Tex told me to do. And, uh, but I was staying sober with all these things, the 12-step calls and uh, working with drunks and enough, I had a faith when I came in, believed in a God, made the 12-step calls, uh, talked to my sponsor, Frank Randall, and my co-sponsor, Cliff, um, in my fifth step when I got to hurting so bad I had to unload. And I was dragging my feet in many ways, but down there they weren't. And I, I just, my little pea brain wouldn't pick up all that good stuff like the other people. And I, I was just getting along. I suppose I'd hear this stuff read, but it was reading. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path, you know, through through. And I thought that was just something they had to do to get the meeting started or something so that I could, you know. I just did not work the steps like you do today. You've got it all. And I was working uh, with a <laughs> handicap, I guess. <laughs> and so one night, a guy named Joe came to um, the hole in the ground again. He'd been there again and again and again. He came up to the text and he said, text, i got to know something. Everybody stands over here but me and I keep coming in and out. Now he says, I want to know what step I've missed. And text said, wait, it's too hot in here. And he had a bad heart, and he said, sit out on the steps, and I'll talk to you after the meeting. I'll tell you which step you missed. And so we sat out there together, and he said, well, Joe, uh, do you, do you want me to tell you what step I think you missed? Yeah, Tex, yeah. Tex says, well, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Our lives had become unmanageable. Now then, he said, uh, I think you just talk about your drugs like it was kind of cute, and you laugh about it a lot. I don't think you've admitted your life was unmanageable. And Joe said... That's right, Tex. Thanks a lot. And he got up to go, and Tex grabbed him by the coattail and said, Sit down. <laughs> we just gotten started. <laughs> now, he said, We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, and you are an admitted atheist and an agnostic, and you say you wouldn't know God if he walked in here in a red nightgown, and that's sacrilegious. 
Now, he said, you see, you haven't even taken the, the second step. You can have a power of your own choosing. So you missed the second step, which means that you can't make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of something you don't believe in. That's the third step. You're, you're helpless with your religion and attitude. And when we talk about inventory, he says, everybody in the group has taken one but you and my sis. And, <laughs> and in the book it says, write it down, write it down. And you always say, I got it right up here, I got it right up here. And that can't be because you can't contain all that information in your head when it's needed the most. He says, keep it simple. Get a matchbook and a stub of a pencil just to show your willingness and write down one thing that's bugging you and then do something about it. But you won't do that, Joe. You can keep it that simple, just one thing that's bugging you, and do something about it. And so when we get to the fifth one, admitted to God ourselves and another human being the exact nature of our wrongs, how can you do that? You don't know what the exact nature of your wrongs are because you haven't taken an inventory and you don't believe in God. The sixth one, entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. What defects of character? You don't know what those defects of character are because you don't, uh, you didn't write anything down. So you don't have any defects of character, so you can't even touch that one. And entirely ready to have God do, yeah, I see, atheists don't believe in him. So what are you going to do now in the seventh? Humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. That him is a short word, but it's a capital H. And you're not humbly going to ask somebody you don't believe in to remove your shortcomings and you don't know what they are because you haven't taken an inventory. <laughs> so now you're, in, in, you're really in trouble because the eighth one said we made a list of all the people we'd harmed became willing to make amends to them all. And you can't do that mentally. You have to get a sheet of paper and write down somebody that you've harmed and it's an attitude of willingness that's required. And, and then it says directly made amends to these people wherever possible, except when to do so will injure them or others. But you haven't even made the list. And you always said you didn't harm anybody but yourself. But yourself. So you see, you struck out on the ninth one. And now the tenth one, I wish I could skip it, Joe, because it says that we continued to take a personal inventory and when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. And how can you continue to do something you've never started? <laughs> And he said, the eleventh one was tough for me. I was a mean old drunk down on Skid Row. I was a king of Skid Row for a long time. And, and it was tough for me to, where it said, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. I really had to break that one down to the simplest terms. I looked up the word meditation and it was good, clean thinking. And at first... My first prayers were just uh, having a good thought for the gal or the fellow sitting next to me. Give it time, it'll grow. We get to the twelfth one, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps which you have not taken. <laughs> we tried to carry the message to alcoholics which you've refused to do, you're always too busy. And to practice these principles in all our affairs which you have not done, Joe jumped up and said, oh, Tex, I didn't ask for all that. And he drifted into the shadows and drank a while, but he did come back and he got sober. And then I heard those steps that night for the first time, and after my brother Tex had been dead for a long time, he died in October of 52, right there at the hole in the ground, I realized he was talking to his sister. <laughs> and I believe it. It helped me then, and it helped me now, to understand how really simple they are to work. 
When my brother died right there at the hole in the ground after having had a t- heart attack um, and had been sick for many years, I didn't handle it well and I couldn't cry and I was being brave for the group and I got cold as stone and I didn't react and I wouldn't talk to people and I'd just say, I'm fine, show a lot of teeth, I'm fine. And I, after hurting so bad, I had a physical ache all over and I'd look around the group and they loved me and they felt for me and yet I didn't want to talk to them or anything but I went every night, every night. And it looked just like some cocktail lounge that I'd been in, you know, gloomy. It looked gloomy to me, and I couldn't talk to them, and they knew that. But I didn't know what to do, and I didn't want to drink, but I couldn't feel I was a zombie. I wrote to Bill, and I said, Bill, I'm writing you this because I don't know what to do. I, I don't want to get drunk, and I know that I'm not, but I may go crazy. Because this is, I, I can't, I don't know how to handle myself since my brother died. Please tell me what to do. Please tell me what to do. And I got a letter back right then. As soon as Bill could write it, and it saved my life, and I'll close with it, because it saved my life. Started out, dear Sib, I knew him well. Met Dr. Bob once, but I knew Bill well, visited with him, and so on. And he said, your letter has moved me more than anything has in recent days. In God's house there are many mansions, and somehow or other I see your brother Tex sitting on the porch of one of those mansions talking to another drunk, and that's as it should be. But as for you, my dear, I will tell you this. Life is but a long day in school. Some of our lessons are hard. Some of our lessons are easy. And it's not so much what happens to us here, but it's what we do with the experience we have. It's the demonstration that counts. So from that day to this, I've had more testing periods, which Bill called them testing periods. And for each one at the time, it would be so bitter, I think I can no longer endure. You know, I mean, if you live as long as I have, you're going to have them. (laughs) But you can have them sober, and you can feel sorry for yourself and go to a lot more AA meetings, and it's going to be all right. It, It always has been, and it always will be. But I've always remembered that letter. And finally, people, and in that letter it said, if you like what I've had to say, you may share it with others, okay? I have Xeroxed possibly a couple of thousand of those over the years and, and mailed them to people that wanted, maybe they had some, something in their life that was hard, like losing a loved one or whatever, whatever, whatever. And I, I mail them out. If there's any value in that letter, a special value to you and you want a copy, let me know after the meeting. AA is new, 40 what, 40 odd years old. I'm new. I'm new, I'm not an old-timer. I punch anybody in the nose that would call me an old-timer, and I think seniority is a dirty word. I really do. You are my life. You always have been, you always will be. And we're all new together, because this is a school. This is a school, and we're all beginners. We're like fledglings learning to fly. So as a fledgling's learning to fly, may the wings of your happiness never lose a feather. Thank you and God bless you.